This is the Build Wealth Canada podcast, episode number 69. Welcome to the Build Wealth Canada podcast, where it's all about becoming debt-free, accelerating your wealth, and taking control of your money. Now, here's your host, Cornell Schreiber. Hello and welcome to the Build Wealth Canada show. Today, I have Jessica Morehouse on the show who is an accredited financial counselor. She's also an award-winning blogger, the host of the Mo Money podcast, the founder of the Millennial Money Meetup, and you might have seen her on CBC News, the Globe and Mail, the Financial Post, and many other news channels and publications here in Canada. In today's episode, you'll learn the highest impact actions that we Canadians can do to really make a dent in increasing our savings. We also cover how to best manage your money and day-to-day cash flows, the different types of tools and systems that you can use to help manage your finances, and then we talk about investments and how Jessica actually invests her own money. Last but not least, I consider Jessica to also be a very successful entrepreneur, and so if you are considering starting your own business or are looking for ways to take your existing business to the next level, we talk about how Jessica was able to grow her company so successfully and what lessons we can learn from her to propel our own Canadian businesses to the next level. Now, before we get into the episode, I also want to give a quick announcement that I've taken over the Canadian Financial Summit, and I have free tickets for you. So the conference is 100% online, so no travel required. It's specifically for Canadians. It's taking place this fall, and I've been bringing on some of Canada's top personal finance experts to share their best practices to help you retire early, invest better, lower your fees, pay less in taxes, and help you learn the best practices when it comes to personal finance and investing so that you can hit your financial independence number year earlier. Collectively, these past guests of the summit have been in hundreds of media articles from major news and financial publications in Canada, like the Globe and Mail, the Financial Post, Global News, CTV, Yahoo Finance, and many, many more. And so I'm giving away free tickets to the entire events to get them when I release them. Just sign up anywhere for free over at buildwealthcanada.ca. And that way I have your email to send them to you when they're ready. And also as a bonus, when you sign up, I'll also send you my PDF guide on the top personal finance and investing tools that I use here in Canada. So it's all free and all you have to do is sign up anywhere over at buildwealthcanada.ca. All right, that's it. I hope I see you there. And now let's get into the show. All right, Jess, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So awesome. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad to finally have you on. It's been a long time coming. So yeah, let's get right into it. You've got a lot of experience, both on the financial side and the business side. So super excited to finally do this. So as an accredited financial counselor, I'm sure you deal with many mm-hmm. Canadians that are either struggling financially or would like to really amplify their savings so that they mm-hmm. can invest more and eventually retire early. So what would you say are the highest impact actions that us Canadians can do to really make a dent in increasing our savings, whether it's to pay off mm-hmm. debt or whether we want to save to buy a home or just have more mm-hmm. money to invest for retirement? Mm-hmm. I'd say like when people come to me and they're like, oh, I want to fix my finances and I have no idea where to start. I'd say the, the most logical step is to make a plan. So many people talk about, oh, just start putting 20% away into this. And then, no, you need to like sit down and write out a plan. And usually in my mind, that means having some sort of budget template or a spreadsheet or something like that. And really looking at every single detail of your finances. So like, what is your gross pay? And then after deductions and taxes, what's your net pay? How much net pay do you actually have to allocate to, you know, your savings goals, 
your expenses and then drill down. What are my savings goals? Like what are my actual financial goals? Most people have never really thought about those. Then figure out how to dedicate some of your net pay to that do that first. And then the rest can be allocated to your fixed expenses and your variable expenses. Tip number one, make a budget. I'm sure everyone's heard that, but still it works. That's why people keep on saying it. And then number two is to track your spending consistently. I've personally been tracking my spending and same with my husband for over three years. And it has actually improved our finances so much more than just having a budget and like sort of, you know, looking at our statements and being like, I think we did okay. When you track your spending consistently and have that black and white data, you can see whether your budget needs to be fixed. Maybe it's not realistic or whether you need to kind of, you know, change some of your spending habits. And then the last component is to track your net worth, which is my favorite part, because then you can actually see your progress in terms of building your wealth. Because a lot of people I talk to are like, well, I have a lot of debt and I don't feel like I'm saving anything. And then they start tracking their net worth and they'll actually see that their net worth is increasing month over month, which you know is giving you that kind of motivation to keep on sticking to your budget and tracking your spending and making those like smart habits. So when people say, how do I save more money? I'm like, make a plan. And these are three components in making that plan. <laughs> For sure. And yeah, I hear you with the net worth tracking. I remember I agree with this is that the net worth statement doesn't lie. I mean, if you calculate mm-hmm. it properly, because it includes so many things. I mean, it includes your income, it includes your spending, it includes your, you know, the debts that you have. So you can't really mm-hmm. fudge it. <laughs> yeah. And so it'd be so if you are looking for one number to, you know, because it can be overwhelming with all these different, you know, how much assets do I have? How much yep. liabilities and all these other, how much debt? Well, what's how, how about much is our mortgage? But if we just say, okay, look at your net worth and see where that is moving, and it should be trending upwards and if it's not Mm -hmm. then clearly you need to dive deeper and and look into that yeah there's definitely a problem if it's it keeps on going down that's not how it should go exactly exactly are you i mean with your financial counseling background i mean Mm -hmm. working doing helping people with you know financial issues one-on-one are there any patterns that you've noticed where people are in a way shooting themselves in the foot in terms of sort of you know unknowingly sabotaging their finances, whether, you know, something like, obviously like high credit card debt would be one, but are there any sort of other ones that you've found that we should really be on the lookout for because they can sneak up on us? Mm -hmm. I would say just how things are moving in terms of, you know, everything used to be, you know, oh, I'm spending too much on cable. And now people are like, oh, I don't have cable. So it's great. But now there's like five different television subscriptions (laughs) you can get. And people, I think, are spending so much more money actually on subscriptions because almost everything is subscription based now. Um, And they may forget. Again, if they don't track their spending and so many people do not, they may forget that they've actually signed up for a subscription. So I've worked with clients and they're like, oh, my gosh, I thought I, I didn't even realize. I was paying for this Apple storage or, or, you know, this cloud storage. Like, what is that? I'm like, I don't know. You're paying for it. And you've been paying for it probably for years. And you don't know why you're spending, even if it's just a $2 a month, if you don't even know what it is, then that's a waste of money. And so I see that. And also most people, I feel like assume when they're like, oh, you're overspending, it's probably because you're spending on frivolous things or whatever. No, consistently, almost every single one of my clients just spends money on food all the time and not just groceries. I mean, it depends on if they're a family, then the grocery bill is definitely high. But a lot of the clients I work with are usually single or or they're in a couple, but no children. There's only been a few 
clients I've worked with where they've had families and their finances usually look a little bit different, but typically they spend most of their money on eating out, Uber Eats, um, take out, all that kind of stuff. And that's a very, luckily, easy thing to fix. Um, it's funny. I was actually just, I was, uh, had a speaking engagement the other day. And while I was in the elevator to go to the venue, uh, there's two girls in the elevator talking and, oh my gosh, I really wanted to butt in, but I didn't. I'm like, no, this isn't your place. You should be be listening. <laughs> But, um, the girl was talking to her friend being like, oh my gosh, I can't believe, but I looked at my statement and I spent like $500 on eating out and I spent like $300 on groceries. So I spent like so much money on food. Like, it's just me. Like, I don't even get it. I don't even spend that much money on food. I'm like, well, you clearly do because you crack, you crunch those numbers and you do. And I'm like, how are you even spending that much money? You're like, you're just one person. What are you spending your money on? So it's one of those things where it's like, you may be spending eight, $900 on food and if you don't track it, you'll have no idea. And you'll always have this thing in your mind that you're like, I don't think I'm spending. Like, I do that to myself, too. Like, I don't feel like I've spent that much money last month. And then I put in all of my information. I'm like, oh, I forgot about that. Oh, and I forgot about that. <laughs> so, yeah. Is there a tool that you like to use for that when you do it for yourself? Or do you just do Honestly, it on the spreadsheet? Yeah, that's a good question because a lot of people ask like, what tools do you use or is there a good app? I've tried, I feel like all of them. I don't feel like any of them. I've heard a lot of great things about you need a budget. I've never personally tried it. So that's definitely something I should probably look into just to see what everyone's talking about. But honestly, what I've just been doing for years, and I know a lot of other people who are money experts or really wealthy people, all they do is they just track it in a spreadsheet. And that's exactly what I do. So I've kind of built my spreadsheet based off what I think works the best. And I used to do it in Excel, now use Google Sheets so I can just use it, you know, whenever I'm online, I can easily kind of log in wherever I am if I don't have like my hard drive with me. And also I built it how me and my husband organize our finances is like we're number one, ours is a very complex situation because we're both self-employed and we also don't completely combine our finances. And so we have a lot of different tabs in the spreadsheet. But then once a month, we put all of our data in and then we have a little monthly money meeting and take a look at our numbers and have a conversation about how do we feel? Do we need to change things? How are we doing with our, you know, reaching our financial goals? Are all of our bills paid and all that stuff. And then, you know, may take one to two hours per month. And then we don't really talk about money the rest of the month. So that is kind of my strategy. Been doing it for over three years. It has worked and we rarely, we don't really fight about money because we have that conversation. So we get it out during that one to two hours. Have you found some way to automate the process just so that you're not manually entering transactions, things like well, that? Well, so I don't, yeah. So I'm not like typing in every line item. So what I do is in this kind of template I set up, it's just all I have to do is download the Excel or .csv file from my bank and credit card and then copy and paste. So it is still manual, mm -hmm. but it doesn't take that much time. I guess there's some other ways like for me, for my like business accounting, I have an account with FreshBooks. And so that lets you link a credit card or a bank account. And then it, you know, automatically puts in those uh, transactions into your FreshBooks. But still, you have to go in and fix things because it'll miscategorize. So that's the same thing with like, I feel like any app like Mint used to be really big. You can link it to your bank and credit card statements, but you'll still have to go in and fix things because they got it wrong. So this way, it's still a bit more manual, but I feel like in my opinion, will take less time or, or the same amount of time. So, and also I feel like the goal shouldn't be to automate checking in with your finances. The goal should be to automate, you know, how your bank accounts and credit cards all work together. So money will automatically go into your savings investments accounts and your, you know, any kind of debt. So everything gets paid and 
all your, like everything should be automated that way. But when you want to take a look at how is my spending doing and what my net worth, there's not really an automatic way to do it. And I don't think there should be because you need to go through that manual process to actually take a minute and think about everything that you just happened. Like having that moment of clarity while you're kind of copying, pasting and, you know, maybe categorizing them, formatting it. So it looks nice. You have that moment to think, oh, this is what happened. If it was all automatic and you just saw it quickly on, you know, a web page, you probably wouldn't think that hard about it. But because you have to do that manual task, I think you think a little bit harder about that, which will help you in the future kind of uh, change some of your spending habits. Mm-hmm. For sure. Yeah, there's definitely, um, yeah, you definitely can't have it fully automated. I, I, I totally agree because you do actually have to analyze to make sure mm-hmm. that you, what is that transaction? Should I have really spent that? Uh, that kind of a thing. Yeah, like the, what I use personally, it's more of like a semi-automated method where because I don't want to manually enter transactions that just drives me bananas and mm-hmm. I want to like auto-categorize as well because I don't mind checking yeah. over to make sure it categorized it correctly. Like I'll do that, but I find that takes less time than like manually adding it into a category yeah. and stuff. So yeah, like I've kind of, I've, I use a tool that I uh, really like, but I know like I used to use Mint. I ran into some issues with it syncing with some of my accounts. So I stopped using that. And then also like when it comes to the free tools, it's like you to use them with a grain of salt, right? Because it's like, well, it's free in quotation marks, but it's not really free because they're making money somehow, right? So they're pitching your products. Like, I don't know how they're using my private information. So I stopped using them. And then I think you said you need a budget was the other one, right? Like YNAB, is that yeah. the one? Yeah, I, I tried. I don't know, maybe it's working better now. When I tried them, like it seemed like they were really focused on US clients. Oh, and, yeah. and when I tried, but, and then they're like, yeah, we can do Canada stuff too. But when I tried to do like my Canadian accounts, it wasn't working properly when I did it. So I did get this question a lot. Uh, so I do have a link on my site where basically I'm always going to keep updating it with whatever tool I'm currently using, which is like the best one. Cause I use the, like, I love these kinds of tools. <laughs> so yeah. So like if anyone listening, if you do want to check out, like just to know what tool I'm using now, because that's the best one I'm able to find. And this way, like, even if you listen to this episode, like a two years from now, it'd still be relevant. It's buildwealthcanada.ca slash spending. So just buildwealthcanada.ca slash spending. And then there I like have links to it and I explain why I like it and that kind of stuff. I'll refrain from saying who I use now, I guess, because well, I was ask you, like, can you tell me what so okay, so right now I use Tiller. That's who I use. Uh, it's called Tiller. But I would say, you know, if this is this episode, go check out uh, go to both handouts slash spending mm-hmm. to check that out. because uh, who knows, right? Like if maybe mm-hmm. down the road I'll find something better. But right now, like yeah. after trying mint, after trying you need a budget, after trying mm-hmm. I even used to do it in QuickBooks, which was so painful. So yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. That, yeah, so now I just use Tiller and I've been, I've been really happy with it. But I, yeah. like you said, it's like a semi-automated process because you still There's need to There's always going to be some it. manual stuff. And for me too, I also, maybe it's also like just to kind of protect myself and privacy and all that stuff. I like being able to own my information and no one else owning it. Yeah. So no other company has my data and I've seen it before. Apps will come out and then they'll just be discontinued or they'll stop updating and then you'll have to get your data out of there and what a pain that is. Mm-hmm. So for me, I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to make my own thing and just keep it that way that's the yeah. easiest way the thing wrong anyway. with that yeah it's not like there's one perfect way for everyone no. right it's everything's no, 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 got exactly. its pros that's and cons right? like, do whatever works for you yeah. that's for sure and for yeah. me spreadsheets for sure. yeah <laughs> Yeah, I, I love spreadsheets too. So I definitely know no, no criticisms there. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, uh, another thing is that we all know that we should get our finances in order and, you know, optimize mm-hmm. our investments and manage our money carefully, but we're all obviously busy and it's easy mm-hmm. for things to slip through the cracks. So when it comes to staying organized in your personal life, your finances, and you've got your own business,
business as well. That keeps mm-hmm. you pretty busy. You know, are there any tools or systems or especially workflows that yeah. you depend on that work really great for you? Yes. So I'd say in terms of like keeping my day-to-day tasks organized, I feel like I've used a lot of different apps and there's a lot of like online to-do lists. I actually do it all manually now. I've actually talked to a lot of other entrepreneurs that do this. They're like, you know what? I just use a notebook. And sometimes doing the simplest thing is just the most effective. Again, it depends on who you are and what you want to do. But I used to use a lot of online to-do lists and that I forget to open the tab or the program. For me, because I do everything in my home office, I have my notebook. It's always on my desk. It's kind of that indicator like, hey, you've got to check this. So that's kind of my running list of these are things that I need to do, projects I'm working on. And then I have a big kind of whiteboard behind me that has upcoming projects or campaigns or speaking gigs with dates and what I need to do. So it's kind of a bigger kind of picture list. And then I have another smaller whiteboard in front of me that has, okay, for today, these are the tasks that you need to get done. So it's a system that it's taken me like three years to figure out, but it actually is pretty effective for me personally. I need to like have something to like erase or check off strike out for me to feel that fulfillment of like, I did it. And then for kind of other things in my business, there's lots of little tools. So for booking appointments or podcast interviews, I use a program called Acuity. I wouldn't say it's like the best thing in the world, but it's fine. I haven't really, sometimes it's like, if it works fine, I'm not going to like take the time to see if there's something a little bit better. I'm like, I've never had an issue with it. It doesn't look like beautiful. There's probably some better schedulers out there, but it's great. It also connects to Zoom. So if I do book someone for financial counseling, I can book them within that program, get payment, and it automatically sends them like an email calendar with the Zoom link. So it's pretty automated. So that's full. What else do I use? I feel like I actually was just thinking about this the other day, trying to look at like last year's spending on like what were some of the apps that I spent my money on. And it's a lot. (laughs) There's so many. It's cool because I run my business completely online just by using my laptop, but I use so many different programs. Actually, I'm just going to take a look because I'm so curious. Like, what do I use? I have a whole tab in my browser to remind me of these are the apps that you're paying for. Remember, (laughs) so for like podcasts, I use a program called Squadcast now for social media scheduling. I use SmarterQ and Tailwind for Pinterest for my email signatures. So that always has kind of, you know, it looks nice and fresh. That's another thing that I never thought in a business. You have to care about what your email signature looks like. But I use one called Wise Stamp that you can update and make look nice and stuff like that. I use Google Drive a ton. I'd say that's probably the main thing that I organize documents and spreadsheets and projects in is Google Drive. And it's also great because now I'm, I'm starting to work with an assistant to help me with marketing and we're just doing everything in Google Drive. It's very easy just to communicate that way. So I'd say those are kind of the, the main things that I use. There's mm-hmm. probably a ton more, but I can't remember what they are. <laughs> we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Do you know what interest rate you're getting on any cash sitting in your checking and savings accounts? There's a huge range in what the different banks are offering in Canada. And at the time of this recording, when I compared what I get at my bank versus the other banks in Canada, I find that I'm getting anywhere from double to over 30 times more interest, which is basically free money. So the bank that I use is EQ Bank. It's free to bank with them. There are no monthly fees, no minimum balances to get that higher rate. I've been using them since 2016 and I've never had any issues. They've got unlimited free Interact e-transfers, which I find super convenient for sending anybody money at no charge. And they have a super convenient way of sending money internationally too. And the money isn't locked in. So you can actually take money out at any time, just like a regular checking account, but you're not incurring any fees in the process. 
So I keep my entire emergency fund and spending money with them. Basically, just about everything of mine that isn't being invested in ETFs goes directly into my EQ Bank account to earn me that higher interest. And I've been using them, like I said, since 2016, even before they became a sponsor of the show. So if you are going to sign up for free with them, please use the link Build Wealth Canada dot ca slash eq that's build wealth canada dot ca slash the letter e and the letter q it's a huge help and using that specific link helps keep the show and almost everything else on the build wealth canada site free and as a thank you when you sign up with them for free using my link specifically if you send me any confirmation email that you get from them i'll send you my full free guide on all the investments that i personally own and buy along with an in-depth explanation on why i chose each one so there are thousands of investment options out there some incredibly expensive with ridiculous hidden fees so this guide will at least help you narrow things down and these are all the investments that have massively helped my wife and I retire in our 30s and they are the investments that I continue to hold and live off of today so to get the free guide just sign up for free over at buildwealthcanada.ca slash eq and it has to be through that specific link and then forward me any confirmation email that you get from eq to bonus at buildwealthcanada.ca and I'll send you the full guide for free So thank you so much for using that link to support the show and enjoy the free banking and the high interest rate on your savings. What do you use for reminders and such so you don't forget about some task you were supposed to do for some project or whether it's like personal Mm. business finances, whatever? Well, so I guess if it's like an event I have to be at, I always just use my Google calendar and have a bunch of reminders, but it really is like those to-do lists. I just have dates with all of them. So I know, okay, so this is coming up next week. But yeah, pretty much I just schedule everything in Google calendar to give me that kind of extra reminder. And then I just constantly kind of check it throughout the day to be like, okay, what's coming up again? Yeah. That makes sense. And then so every day you review your kind of master list and then you say, okay, here's what I'm going to do for today specifically. And then you just focus on that. Yeah. And even like using my email inbox as kind of a reminder. So if there's an email that is connected to, this is a task that you have to do or project, I'll keep it in my inbox and maybe start it to be like, this is indicating that you need to do something about this. Only can it be put into a folder away from the inbox is, you know, your indication that you're done or you're waiting for a response from that person. Mm -hmm, Gotcha. No, that's great. Yeah, I think that's relevant whether you're someone's a business owner or just everyone probably listening mm-hmm. to this podcast has a job or <laughs> yeah so, no honestly like yeah. my email system like I, I'm sure so many other people have different systems I have a couple friends who are like I just keep everything in my inbox and then if I need to you know find something I just search it I'm like mm-hmm. that would give me so much anxiety yeah, yeah. <laughs> I have folders and subfolders so everything has its place <laughs> did you follow someone else's system or did you just kind of is it just a creation you made yourself throughout the years I developed it, I think, at my first job out of university, well, my second job, really. Um, My first full-time job, though, was working in a newspaper in the sales and marketing team. And part of my job was communicating with, it's actually funny that I'm saying this, I'm like communicating with advertisers and brands. (laughs) Maybe that's how I ended up where I am. So I'm so used to working with advertisers and brands. But I'd be talking to lots of the same people every week and then sometimes new people. So it just made more sense to categorize all of these communications and projects by the rep name or the advertiser's name and stuff like that. And so that was just a system that worked well for me. And then I just 
kind of translate that to every other job I've had. Just like I categorize things on either, like for instance, like in my inbox right now, it's like I have one big folder called advertising. And then within that folder, I have every single individual advertiser or for financial counseling, that's a big folder. And then within that subfolders for every client I've had. So just kind of figuring out a system that that makes the most logical sense when I'm like, oh, I need to find an you know email from Amy, one of my financial counseling clients. Oh, I know where I can find it. Mm-hmm, for sure. All right. So let's let's switch gears a bit and then talk about investing. So <laughs> you are obviously big into investing as well. You, you helped each other with investing too. Mm-hmm. And not, not just money management, but uh, kind of how to optimize their investments. So what do you personally invest in? And mm. what's been the process be, you know, behind that decision yeah. of choosing? So yeah, great question. I love talking about investing now, which is crazy to say because I used to hate it. I felt so anxious about it, so embarrassed about it because, and I think this is kind of maybe a unique issue specifically with women who were never maybe part of that conversation. I, no one ever talked to me about investing growing up or when I was in college or even when I was in my early twenties, no one talked to me about investing, but I always found sometimes I'd be around some of my guy friends and they would be talking about this and as if they already knew exactly what was happening. And I'm like, oh, did I miss something? Like, did I miss a class? Like, what's going on? And, and so I felt like I was always kind of late to the party and I'm kind of embarrassed for my lack of knowledge. And so because of that, you know, you can either do one of two things. You can either just like go hard. Oh, I'm going to learn all this stuff, or you can bury your head in the sand and just never talk about it. And that's what I did for a number of years in my twenties. I just focused on all the other aspects of personal finance. They made a lot more sense. People were a little bit more open to talking about budgeting and stuff like that. And then investing. And also lots of my, you know, women friends didn't really want to talk about investing or didn't know anything about it. And so it just, I'm like, okay, I, I don't really have to deal with that right now. And then eventually as I realized, I, I just kept on blogging and, and uh, realized there's this big kind of thing that I'm avoiding. I'm not even touching this topic of investing. I need to do something about that, especially if I want this to be a bigger part of my career and eventually like, you know, do this full time. I need to tackle this thing that's really scary to me. And I made a lot of mistakes. Um, You know, I started investing through uh, ING Direct, which is now Tangerine in their index funds, which was actually a really smart idea. But at the time, I had no idea what I was actually investing in. Like, I read a few investing books at that point, and I didn't understand a ton of them because, you know, we've probably read a ton too. There's some that are just so full of jargon. You're like, I, it's like a different language. You're like, what are you talking about? And again, like I don't have a financial background in terms of like what I studied in university. I went to film school. I was like totally arts and English. Like that's what I studied. So a lot of the stuff I'm like, I have no idea what you're talking about. And so I, I started using ING Direct basically just because my older sister, that's how she was investing. And I trusted her. She's very smart. So I did that. And then that was the first market because I started investing like in 2010. So as the market was starting to recover. And then when I married my husband in 2013, we moved all of our investments to RBC with because he already had some investments through an inheritance there. And so it just made sense. Oh, we're married. Let's just move to the same institution. We did that for a few years and had a terrible time because we were in, invested in actively managed mutual funds with very high fees. We had a terrible financial planner that... I felt was a little bit sexist, uh, would literally just talk to my husband, even though I'm like, he doesn't know what you're talking about, but I do. So I'm learning this stuff and was investing us in portfolios that were totally wrong for us and didn't properly explain anything. And so I felt a bit kind of jaded from that experience. So once I finally kept on reading about personal finance and even I learned, you know, a lot about investing in my financial counseling training and, and also like having my own podcast so I can have guests on my show to talk to me about investing and pretend like, oh, it's for the list but really it was also for me to learn more about investing. I eventually over time and experience making mistakes learned 
what path I wanted to go down to and also kind of see what is everyone saying consistently and almost everyone who is knowledge about investing is talking about how great passive investing or indexing is. And so I feel like since I so many people are talking about this, I should really pay attention to this. And so I did a lot more research on that strategy and then realized, yes, that makes a lot of logical sense to me, especially when I understand other investing strategies and how I don't think they were the right thing for me. And so that's uh, the route uh, I took. And so we moved all of our money out of those mutual funds. And I then moved it into a couple of different robo-advisors. I wanted to test them out. And my husband did the same. He still has some money with a, a robo-advisor, but then predominantly his portfolio is uh, self-directed. And that's what I'm planning on doing this year, waiting for maybe, a, I'm waiting it out. This is, I want to make a good plan. And also I'm not sure. <laughs> I don't know if I want to take my money out of the robo-advisor or just start from scratch building a portfolio. So I'm still kind of figuring out what kind of plan of attack I want to do, but that's the windy journey I took okay. to invest. <laughs> so you specifically, you're with the robo-advisor and then now I guess you're at this debating, okay, do yeah. I do like an asset allocation ETF or do I do individual ETFs? Yeah, exactly. Or do I just that's the other thing. There's this new product, the asset allocation ETF. That I don't think I want to do that actually. Mm-hmm. I think because I'm already with, you know, robo-advisor. So I have a TVSA with one robo-advisor and RSP with another robo-advisor. And I like them. They've done very well, nothing wrong with them. But I feel like because I now feel very comfortable with how they, you know, invest my money, I could do this on my own. I feel that confidence now. I'm just trying to figure out what kind of portfolio do I want to build for myself? And do I like just want to replicate the portfolios I have with these robo-advisors? I don't think I want to do the asset allocation ETF because I want a little bit more freedom. Mm-hmm. It's just like, you know, for, I think they're, yeah, they have a hundred percent equities and then it's 80, 20, but I'm like, well, what if I want to do 90, 10, you know? So I, I think I just need a little bit more flexibility because otherwise then I just stick with a robo advisor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that makes sense. I mean, you're already constrained heavily mm-hmm. by your choices by having a robo advisor. So it's like, mm-hmm. if you're moving to an asset allocation ETF, then mm-hmm. you're, you still have a certain level of constraint. Yeah, but I think a great product, like I have a few friends who with their employer, they uh, basically were like, you can either be in mutual funds, like to have their RSP matching program or uh, with this bank, or you can just open a discount brokerage account with that bank and you can do whatever you want with them and we'll give you money, which sounds great, except when you don't know what you're doing. And so like, well, luckily you can just get, get this asset allocation ETF and it's perfect for you. For sure. Yeah. So now you're just kind of wondering, well, is it worth doing the dive into buying individual ETFs and for all the advantages that that has? But there's also, it's more work. And so it's like, do you want to take that leap? Yeah. Like I I do really like robo-advisors because I mean, I've been investing with them for three or four years now, I think maybe four years now. And it is great because, you know, you're busy, I'm busy. All I have to do, I just have a weekly auto contribution that I make into those accounts and then I don't think about it. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, the automation is great. For sure. Yeah, the automation is great. And yeah, it's just, it's, it's out of sight, out of mind. I just check my accounts once per month to check my net worth. And that's kind of it. Now that I, I do know how to kind of structure it myself. And also I have plans on building a whole course on how to also do this yourself. And I get a lot of people that come to me like, I want to become a DIY investor. I just don't know what the steps are. I would like someone to show me the route. I'm like, this would be a great opportunity for me to you know, build a course and also do it myself. And also, of course, we haven't mentioned fees, but I'd be saving a ton of money on fees. <laughs> so. 100%, 100%. Yeah, so maybe just to give the listeners a bit of, just for anybody that's maybe new to it and doesn't know, well, what is the difference between a robo-advisor versus buying asset allocation ETF? versus buying mm-hmm. individual ETFs. So I guess I'm going to do my mm-hmm. best to explain this in a succinct fashion uh, and feel free to jump in just if you yeah. have some tad. Yeah. But, but essentially, I would so robo-advisors, maybe put that on the far left side mm-hmm. and put buying individual 
individual ETFs on the far right side. So on the left side, it's robo-advisors. It's much easier. It's automated. It's very much like, I don't know, I think of it as like the Apple of investing, right? Where it's like they make things super simple. Yes, you miss out on some functionality. Yes, you're not going to get some of these extra features, maybe, you know, for like the power users, but anybody can use it. It's, it's great. So that's kind of the robo thing. The downside, though, is that the fees are on the higher side. So still a lot less than actively managed mutual funds, but the fees are definitely higher and you don't get to really pick the investments in such a way where they are the most tax efficient, depending on your account, like TFSA, RSP, mm-hmm. non-registered. So so you do miss out on some tax savings and your fees are higher. And then there's the asset allocation ETFs, which are, I would say, the middle ground. So they pretty much do what the robo-advisors do, but it's not as automated, like you still have to go into your discount brokerages and buy these ETFs. Um, so it's not going to automatically take the money out of your account. And, and, you know, it automatically takes the money every month or whatever and invests it right away, right? Yeah. And it rebalances, like you literally don't have to do a thing. So yeah, yeah I was trying to figure that out with the asset allocation ETFs. I assume, like, I was trying to figure out, like, how can you kind of automate that? I would assume that if you have, like, a cash account with your discount brokerage, if you set up an auto contribution from, like, your bank to that cash account, I don't know if it's possible to set up, probably not, an auto buy from that cash account to your, like, TFSA or RSP. I feel like yeah, so from everything that I've seen so far, and, and maybe they'll change this mm-hmm. in the future, but from last time that I've looked into this, mm-hmm. they will not buy the asset allocation ETF yeah. for you automatically. So you, you mentioned rebalancing, how that's great with mm-hmm. robo-advisors. So the asset allocation ETFs, for anybody that doesn't know, they also automatically rebalance. So you, you definitely still get that advantage. The The fees are a lot lower on the asset allocation ETFs uh, than the robo-advisors, or like low enough where like you should care. And so that's like the incentive for people to switch from robo-advisor to asset allocation ETFs. But then, yeah, in terms of there is no automatic buying. So what you could do, you could say, for example, in your banking account, you could say, okay, every once a month, I want mm-hmm. you to transfer X amount, whatever, how much you want to invest mm-hmm. every month into, let's say, my Quest Trade account, and that's going to happen automatically. And so then that money will just show up as cash in your Quest Trade mm-hmm. account. But then you physically have to go into yeah. Quest Trade once a month or whenever you want and actually buy that one ETF. So you're basically buying yeah. one ETF once a month, which should take you, I don't know, when you're just getting started, let's call it 10 mm-hmm. minutes, right? Like 10 minutes yeah. a month. So it's yeah, still very little fun. and it's worth to save on the fees and stuff. There really should be a functionality to set up like an auto buy like on it you know because i know it's it's all about pricing and just like i want to buy at this certain price or whatever but there should be a way to be like it's not about the price it's just about the time like i just want to buy every friday at 12 p.m or something you know what i mean that's right what i think though is that brokerages they don't really have an incentive to add that feature because when you look at someone like questrade i mean i I use questrade and Mm -hmm. um they have their own robo advisor service, right? Yeah, that's true. So, that's true. Right. So for them, it's like, wait, we're going to spend money to create this new feature that people want, and now, so then, what incentive does someone have to go mm-hmm. with the robo advisor or for any robo advisor if? Questrade just automated that whole, you know what I mean? Like you basically just created yep. RoboAdvisor. So oh, like, there's still other things like RoboAdvisors help you with your you know, risk tolerance questionnaire, but you can even mm-hmm. do that for free online. So I guess what I'm saying is the, this, the brokerages don't really have an incentive yeah. to fully automate it because yeah. then it's like, why wouldn't you just do that? It, it, they'll lose business essentially. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, so then just to finish my, my rant for anyone that's new to this, and then like on the far right, we've got mm-hmm. the buying individual ETFs. And so this is where you're paying, like this is what I personally, this is where you pay the lowest possible fees. And so that's the big advantage. And then the other big advantage is that you get to pick 
which account you put them in. So some ETFs, like let's say US, is more efficient in one account versus another, and the you know another mm-hmm. ETFs are more efficient in a TFSA versus a taxable account. You know things of that nature, right? So by being able to have them split out uh, by having things split out in that way, you're able to save a bunch of money on taxes as well. And so that's the incentive. And then the downside is that it is more labor intensive because now they won't automatically rebalance for you. So you have to automatically rebalance. So it's a bit more work, Mm -hmm. but especially as your portfolio gets larger, it's very much worth considering because, Mm -hmm. you know, these percentages add up. Like if your portfolio is like $10,000, then these, you know, like a little a percent of a percent is not a big deal versus if your portfolio is like, you know, half a million, all of a sudden these things start to matter, right? Or, or a few mm-hmm. hundred thousand. So, and the other important thing to consider too, is like, obviously if you're using, you know, quest trade, there's, you know, free uh, ETF trades, which yes. is great. But if you're using a different uh, discount brokerage, typically you'll be paying like nine or 10 bucks per trade. So if you you want to, you know, with a robo advisor, I can make weekly uh, contributions and then they buy weekly and all that kind of stuff. Um, um, but I say t- ton on fees uh, because I don't, they have, you know, it's part of the management fee, um, which is 0.5%. So it's not like I pay for all the trades individually. It's just kind of wrapped up into that percentage. But if you're doing DIY investing, then you're paying, you know, that nine or $10 each time you trade. So you have to really keep an eye on like, how many trades do I want to do? Because each trade I make will cost me more money. So maybe I'll just do once a month because it'll save me, you know, more money. Yeah, that's an excellent point. Like when I, um, like back in our working days where we're, you know, putting in money every single um, every single uh, month, yeah, we would be buying, like I would be buying four ETFs every single month, right? And so mm-hmm. if you're paying $10 each one, well, that's $40 that I'm paying every month. I mean, yeah. that that adds up. Fortunately, like, yeah, like I said, I use Questrade so that you can buy that for free. Um, so that's why we never really incurred that. But I can see that being a consideration because that, that adds up, right? That could be money that you mm-hmm. could be investing, but instead it's just disappearing into the bank. So exactly. uh, yeah, so that's that's a really good point. And I have talked to people where they're like, well, like all my stuff is with whatever, name a bank, like RBC mm-hmm. or whatever. Mm-hmm. I just like having mm-hmm. it there, everything's centralized. And that's fine. Like you could totally do that. You could still buy all those ETFs there. Just, just mm-hmm. realize, yeah, you're going to be paying more, you're probably going to be paying more uh, in the transaction fees because usually, like you said, it is like five, ten dollars per trade. Mm-hmm. So you may only want to do that once a month or once a quarter. Like you have to kind of decide. But anyways, yeah, I just want to mm-hmm. do that just to be kind of user friendly to all the new listeners who are just getting into this as well. Because we're talking about yeah. this because we're nerds and we <laughs> read about. You know this what? Stuff. But, uh, like <laughs> you know, cut to me five years ago, I didn't know any of this stuff, and I, I remember vividly being in conversations with people, and they're talking about ETFs and trading and this and that, and I would just be like, oh my gosh, I have no, I'm. So I hope they don't ask me a question because I won't be able to answer. Mm. But for me, I eventually, you know, of course, I ignored that for a while. But then I eventually realized the only way to have a voice in that conversation is to understand the the jargon, the language, all this stuff. And it doesn't take that much. I feel like sometimes it is just about finding one or two books that really just click for you. And that was what happened for me. Like, you can read a ton of articles, but sometimes you're like, I feel like they're talking over me or under me. Sometimes it's just about finding you know, the right voice that really kind of hits home for you. And that's what happened for me. Like one of my favorite books of all time uh, that really motivated me to continue this journey was Millionaire Teacher. I don't know what, but it was just his writing really affected me. And I felt like for the first time I understood what he was talking about. And that kind of opened up the door then to more complex books. That was that. Yeah, that's a great book. I remember when I was just getting my um, learning, <laughs> trying to learn how mm-hmm. to do all this many mm-hmm. years ago. That was one of the books that I read, and that was recommended to me. And it, yeah, it, it's it's a fantastic way for someone to sort of learn the basics and wrap your head around it and that kind of mm-hmm. a thing. Yeah, and, and I 
hear what you're saying. I mean, especially with the asset allocation ETFs, because I can see how before they came around, it was like you're either, are you going to do a robo-advisor or are you yeah. going to buy individual ETFs? And some people do get intimidated by the individual ETFs because now, yeah. like some people have never even purchased a stock before. And it's like, well, now how do I do this? And which exactly. ones? And rebalancing? And I'm not good with spreadsheets, right? Like there's this whole thing. But now with the asset allocation ETFs, I like how there's a middle ground where it's like you can start to get your feet wet with this a little bit. But a lot of the difficult things, like I, I imagine people when they do struggle, it might be with the rebalancing piece. That would be my mm-hmm. guess because not everyone's a spreadsheet geek like me. So yeah. So I think that's like that's a great thing to, to consider. But I'm glad you yeah. brought up that book because it's fantastic. Yeah. And it's also, I think there's something to be said for actually, like reading is great, but actually trying out some of these things. Like that's how I also build my financial confidence was trying out different things. Like I was really kind of intimidated by uh, robo-advisors when it first started because they were only a few years old in Canada. And so I'm like, ooh, what if they take all my money? What if they close down? I don't know how they work. And then I tried, as I mentioned, two different ones just to see the difference and been doing it for three years. I'm like, oh, okay, I, I get how they work. It's not that hard. And same with, uh, you know, buying ETFs or stocks or anything. Open up a discount brokerage account and, you know, you could do, I know there's like some uh, discount brokerage accounts where you can play around with it. Like you don't actually have to invest your personal money to, to kind of pretend buy a stock or whatever. But for me, I sometimes learn by again, making mistakes. And so I've definitely learned a ton by just making some trades, thinking I'm doing the same, you know, okay, I think this is a, and actually fulfilling that trade and seeing it happen, seeing the process oh, I I read about this and now I actually see it through my own eyes. Now I have a better sense of how it actually works. And that will actually, so actually just like experience and trying it out will help a ton. Yeah, no, that that's a great tip. I remember when I uh, when I was investing in the very beginning, like we were all equities um, before mm-hmm. we did the uh, before we hit our financial independence number. So 100% equities, but I still wanted to get a sense of how it works when you buy a bond ETF because they function a bit differently, right? Like they pay mm-hmm. interest and it's 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 different. Uh, so I remember, yeah, I kind of I did what you suggested was I just bought I bought I bought one <laughs> one mm-hmm. bond ETF. So it was like I don't know what it was like twenty five dollars or twenty dollars or whatever. But just to have that in the portfolio, and then it's like okay, I've gone through the process. I can see how the like when the interest comes in and how much it is and how you know all that, and you just start to feel comfortable with the product and and mm-hmm. how and how it works and so you know what to expect so that when you are making you know like a $10,000 investment in the future or whatever the case is whatever mm-hmm. the amount is you feel much more comfortable right because you're sort of scaling up right and so yep. yeah so I think that's a really really good tip for sure it's interesting you mentioned that uh, when you start out, you're 100% equities. I feel like I've been having a lot of conversations with people and they've been sharing. I'm like, oh, I'm 100% equities. I'm like, that is so not the conversation that I feel like was going on like several years ago. Like maybe it depends on who I'm talking to, but I'm like, I, I it's only recently I feel like people have been sharing that they've been in 100% equity portfolios, which to me several years ago would be like, oh, that's crazy. But now I'm like, oh my gosh, that's actually definitely what I'm thinking about doing. <laughs> I definitely was put in the wrong portfolios for a lot of my investing life. And I feel like when I was with that bank, we were in like maybe a 70-30 or a 60-40 of uh, equities and fixed income. And looking back, I'm like, there's we were so young and we definitely should have been more higher in equities. And yeah, yeah. Yeah. But again, it's also about uh, having that confidence and knowing what you're doing. I feel like I am only comfortable getting just being in a, a whole uh, 100% equities portfolio now because I understand the risk involved. Um, like for right now, you know, there's a lot of craziness going on with the stock market and people are like freaking out. They're like, I'm going to sell everything and just get into bonds. I'm like, I have no desire to do that. I am going, I want to double down and buy, buy, buy. <laughs> exactly right. Yeah. I, I hear yeah. you. I hear you. Yeah. yeah. 
That's true. But again, that comes with experience too. Oh, hundred percent. I mean, I was just on, on your podcast, right? And we're talking about kind of my story mm-hmm. there. And I mean, it, when after, shortly after graduating, 2008 financial crisis hits, right? And mm-hmm. all of a sudden I'm like, I'm not investing in the market at all because this is terrifying. Yeah. And I think people, you know, my boss just lost a hundred grand. Like, well, I'm not, I'm not mm-hmm. getting anywhere near this thing. I'm just mm-hmm. going to pay down on my mortgage, right? And that's what we did. And mm-hmm. then years go by. And as I went down this rabbit hole of learning all this, eventually you're like, wait a minute, these, this is like a cyclical thing. And they have always recovered historically. And do I have reason to believe that's all of a sudden going to stop now? Well, no. So, you know, and, and then you look at other things, right? And all of a sudden, you know, we, so we went from someone that's just like totally not wanting to invest at all because he's terrified because, mm-hmm. you know, like 24 or whatever, and, you know, fresh out of school, doesn't know the stuff to all of a sudden a guy who's got like, you know, 100% equities years later, right? So it's interesting mm-hmm. how education can can change things uh, when it comes to that, for sure. It can change everything. Yeah, like, yeah. That's the thing that I think why I'm so motivated to keep on doing what I'm doing for my business is, you know, spreading the awareness and just this education about personal finance, because for me, it really did change my life, which sounds so nerdy, but it's, it's because I didn't come from a well-off family at all. We were low to middle income, lived very frugally. And I, and we always struggle, you know, we always had a budget. We were always on a tight budget. There's a lot of things we couldn't do because we couldn't afford it. And I thought that's the life that I would continue to leave as an adult. Cause I thought that's just like, Oh, I was born like that. So that's how I have to stay. And I think a lot of people have that mindset. But then when I realized, well, personal finance is for everybody. Money is just a tool. It's up to you to use it how you will. You can actually change your life in uh, you know, whatever way you want. I mean, I still live pretty frugally and that's a personal choice because I like to save and invest my money. I like to see my net worth grow and grow and grow. So, you know, I'm glad I have that frugality skill, but I'm also glad that now I understand how to build my wealth too. And now I have a very, you know, a better life than I expected by this point in my life. So... And now a quick break to tell you about some of the resources you may find helpful on our Build Wealth Canada site. With the amount of questions I get from the show, it's impossible to reply to everyone. So what I've done is brought in two resident experts that you can speak to for free to get some of your questions answered. So for financial planning related questions, we have John Kalos. He's been one of the show's most popular guests. He's a certified financial planner and is who I use to crunch all our numbers before we retired to make sure that we have enough to do an early retirement and won't run out of money and have to go back to work. So maybe you're saving for retirement and want to know if you're on the right track and are saving enough to retire early, or maybe you just have some questions and want to make sure you have your finances in order. So John's able to help you with those kinds of questions. And he's agreed to give Build Wealth Canada listeners a free 30-minute consultation so you can at least get some of your questions answered. I created a page where you can sign up to get a free 30-minute consultation. And when you sign up, you'll also be emailed a guide on the top questions to ask when looking for a financial planner or advisor. So that's over at buildwealthcanada.ca slash John. That's buildwealthcanada.ca slash John. And if you have any investing-related questions, that's the area that I'll be tackling. I answer all questions from students of the investing course, where you learn everything you need to know to be a do-it-yourself passive investor and pay the absolute lowest fees on your investments. And it actually shows you how to completely bypass the fees that robo-advisors charge, which can easily cost you tens of thousands of dollars over your investment lifetime. And then, of course, you see videos of me actually investing my own money so you can see how to do everything step by step. And I'm just an email away if you have any questions. So these lessons helped us retire in early 30s, and we still use them to this day. You can learn more about the course and try it risk-free over at buildwealthcanada.ca slash invest. That's buildwealthcanada.ca 
Invest. And last but not least, the other resident expert that I brought on is there to answer your mortgage-related questions. So Sean is the best-selling author of the book, Burn Your Mortgage. He's been on CTV, Global News, CBC, The Globe and Mail, and many others. He's a licensed mortgage broker too. So I definitely also encourage you to reach out to him if you're looking to get a new mortgage or if your mortgage is coming up for renewal, as at the very least, he'll be able to provide you with a shortlist of the best mortgages that he's been able to find across all of Canada with the latest rates. None of this costs you anything and there's no obligation to get your mortgage through him or use any of those suggested mortgages. So I made a special page for Build With Canada listeners too, where you can sign up to chat with him for free. And to help you further when you do that, I'll also email you the mortgage checklist, which is a guide on the top things to look for and consider when choosing a mortgage. So the page to speak with Sean and get your mortgage questions answered for free is buildwealthcanada.ca slash Sean. That's buildwealthcanada.ca slash Sean, S-E-A. All right. I hope you find that helpful. And now back to the show. I found it's interesting too how I noticed as one's education grows in personal finance and investing, they become more and more or, or they become more risk tolerant. <laughs> that's what mm-hmm. happened with me, right? Is yeah. you start learning these things and then you go, hey, wait a minute. Uh, I'm starting to understand it a bit more. And it lets you make better decisions as opposed to just going with some arbitrary thing or, oh, I'll go with this kind of portfolio because that's what my parents said I should do. And mm-hmm. it's like, well, you know, are, are they financial planners that know, yeah. that, you know, have they modeled out your scenario? Have they seen the studies? <laughs> yeah. I was having a conversation yesterday with someone who was a, you know, wealth management um, professional at a, a bank and, uh, we're doing a segment on TV. And so she's very high up. She's been doing this for a number of years and it was fascinating. We were talking about, and she actually had like a lot of, you know, opinions about other financial planners and how they are actually doing a big disservice to lots of their clients because of how they are basically putting their, their clients in the wrong portfolios. And it's not necessarily because they're bad people. It's because they're asking kind of leading questions like, do you like risk or what's your risk tolerance? Well, risk typically is a bad word. You don't want to take risk. Don't be risky. There's a lot of negative connotations. So so even young people will be like, oh, we don't really like risk. We want to be safe. We want to, and then you hear a term like conservative. You're like, oh, conservative. Well, that sounds safe. That sounds safe. We want to preserve our money. Of course, let's do something conservative, which is actually the opposite thing of what they should be doing. It's actually the least safe thing that they should be doing because they may not actually be able to grow their wealth to an amount where they can actually, you know, live for decades in retirement. I thought that was actually so fascinating. I feel like terminology really needs to be changed a little bit because we have these different connotations from these words in other parts of our lives. Like conservative usually means safe, risky is bad. We don't want to take risks, but actually investing that's the right way. You don't want to be super conservative unless you are like approaching retirement and want to really preserve that capital. And you want to take more risks when you're young. (laughs) For sure. Yeah. I remember when I was a kid uh, or like in high school, when I thought of risk, I thought when it comes to the stock market, I thought, well, risk, I define that as the chance or the possibility of losing all my money. Right. Yes. And, and so that was the kind of, I don't know if it's my upbringing or what I heard. I don't know what it was, but for what that was my definition. And I imagine yeah. like I have those definition, have those, that same definition of risk. Mm-hmm. Is, and I mean, that can be a correct definition if you're thinking about like, I don't know, a penny stock or just your stock in general. Like if you're investing yeah. all your money in one company, well, yeah, that company mm-hmm. could go bankrupt and you could lose everything. So, mm-hmm. so yes, that definition of risk is correct. But well, what about index investing? Right. What if mm-hmm. you're investing in, 
thousands of companies across the globe, then mm-hmm. risk that, that that risk definition doesn't really work anymore because it's not like all those companies are going to become insolvent, you know, <laughs> and yeah. just have all the companies are just gone. That, that, that doesn't happen. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't happen, right? So you mm-hmm. have to change that definition. So yeah, just interesting yeah. how you mentioned that the just the, the how you define the words can really mm-hmm. change, yeah, uh, you know, how you invest mm-hmm. and it can have a huge impact on your life like, like you've experienced. Mm-hmm. And even too, like we're chatting about, you know, what's going on right now with the coronavirus and all that stuff and people freaking out and how logically and, and good investment um, practice is to buy low, sell high. So this is a time to buy, not to sell all of your equities because they're losing value because you're going to lose money that way. That's how you lose money. But a lot of people are doing that because we also instinctively, when we see danger or something like you're losing money or something like that, instinctively, you want to run away and you want to you know protect yourself. But to be a good investor, you're actually supposed to do the opposite. And so it was funny because, you know, we all know this, but it's so hard to do because we are actually kind of battling our natural instincts to run away from danger instead of run towards it. For sure. Yeah, that's why I think yeah. the education, financial literacy piece is so important mm-hmm. because I find like to get out of it, that's an emotional reaction, right? That's mm-hmm. like a lizard brain thing. <laughs> Whereas if yeah. you're educated on it and you know this, then you can actually start throwing reason into it. And I find that can combat that sort of lizard fight or flight kind of brain of ours. And then we can Mm -hmm. actually do the right decision, uh, like the right educated decision, as opposed to just feeling uncomfortable and therefore just selling out and Mm -hmm. being done with the stock market because it can, you know, (laughs) because you lost Mm -hmm. some money or whatever. Yeah, for sure. So I've noticed you've done a fair bit of work at schools as well with with teaching students and then helping them in that way. Uh, Obviously, student debt is a big concern for many as well. So when someone is debating between paying off student debt versus Mm -hmm. saving for a home versus Mm. investing in their TFSA or RRSP, what's your stance and the thought process on how they should decide on which one to focus on? Yeah, I feel like I, I want to kind of talk about the the home buying thing because I hear that so much. They're like, "Oh, you know, I'd love to start saving for retirement or investing for retirement, rather." And uh, but I also have some student debt, but I also want to buy a home. And so many people all automatically prioritize home ownership. And now I will be transparent: I am a homeowner with my husband. However, we waited a very long time and made sure that we bought something in our price range, so it actually the cost of our carrying costs of this home is just a little bit more than uh, our kind of carrying costs when we were renters. So that was like a very, you know, specific thing we wanted to do because I never wanted to be house poor because I see too many people doing that. I didn't want to change our lifestyles or, or make us feel like we don't have enough money. But I see so many people feel this pressure to become homeowners, even though it may not financially make the most sense. Most people really should focus on debt repayment and investing in the stock market for retirement. And especially, it didn't. It obviously depends on where you live. I live in Toronto. So for me, I'm like, you want to buy a house? Do you have a million dollars? No one does. Don't buy a house. You know? So I feel like a lot of us may maybe need to take a look at, well, why do you even want to become a homeowner? Is it this desire to have stability or is it because you feel pressure from society, your parents, whoever, or just you see other people your age buying houses and now you feel like, you know, I want to also look uh, successful for my age. So I want to buy a home. I feel like a lot of the times we need to take a step back and see what do I actually want? Do I actually want to become a homeowner? And you know what? You could probably wait a few years. Like this is, it's a very expensive market, um, you know, depending on where you live. So it may not actually make financial sense. And I hate hearing people delaying investing for retirement because they're saving for a down payment on a home. 
because what people don't really, I think, take too much time to think about is when you're buying a home, uh, number one, your home isn't an investment, it's an asset. And you're basically saving, you know, maybe $100,000 to buy one asset when when you're investing for retirement, you're investing in, you know, index funds, you're investing in tons of different assets. So it's just one of those things that I, I kind of just drives me a little crazy. But going back to your original question, uh, when people are kind of figuring out what should I do, um, I always say number one, before anything, if you've just finished uh, university, uh, make saving a, an emergency fund your priority. I'm so glad that's what I did when I was in my 20s. I don't. I must have read it in a book and knew that's what you were supposed to do. And so when all my other friends were working and spending all of their money and still had all this student debt, I lived super frugally, saved up an emergency fund. And I'm so glad I did because that gave me the kind of stability and the the financial I don't know confidence I guess again I say that word a lot but it's true um to to take risks when I did actually start investing I didn't feel like oh my gosh I'm gonna lose all my money I'm like no 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 we've we've started to read about this just don't touch it and you do have cash in the bank if if you do lose your job or if something else happens and you need to find another place to live and it's more expensive so emergency funds should be your number one priority and then when it comes to your debts it really depends on what kind of debt you have I know your situation was like "Mm, if you go back, maybe you wouldn't aggressively pay off your mortgage. I'm in the same mind. I wouldn't worry about, you know, aggressively paying off your mortgage, but with your other debts that are more expensive than any kind of return you can expect with investing in, you know, the broad market index, then you should just be really focusing on paying off those, you know, credit cards, lines of credit, student loans, you like typically they're pretty low, I'd say five or 6%. I'm not sure. So for lots of people, I don't know. You, It depends. Like I know lots of people that like, I just want to get this out because I, I want this to be, you know, part of my past, not part of my future. And so they just like aggressively pay that down. But I feel like if you do want to do that, I, I would say there's probably still some money you could put into the stock market because it's just good getting that habit and starting as early as you can. So it's it's part of your kind of financial routine, basically. So even though I made a lot of mistakes investing in my 20s, I'm glad I at least started as early as I did because it felt like investing was a normal part of my life. Yeah, that, that makes total sense. Yeah. No, that, that's great. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of, <laughs> there's a lot of students out there, right? Or even people who aren't students anymore, but they have that, they have that debt, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. they're kind of torn between deciding which one. I guess it depends what you're going to invest in too, right? Like if you have a debt, mm-hmm. I, like, I don't know what the student debt rate is right now, but let's say, you know, let's say it's, it's 5%. Well, are you going to be investing? If you're not going to be paying that down, are you going to be investing in equities or are you going to mm-hmm. be doing, you know, fixed income like bonds? Yeah. Right. Cause, yeah. cause that, you know, if, if you're just going to be putting that into bonds, well, that's, the return on that, I mean, you know, they're, they're yielding pretty mm-hmm. low right now <laughs> and they have been yeah. for quite some time. Mm-hmm. So if, you know, if you're just going to do that, then you're probably pay, I would say you're probably pay, better paying off the debt. Yeah, um, absolutely. However, if you're going for equities, which have a much higher expected rate of return, then yeah, then, then, okay, that I could see that being more justified. So I think that's the thing mm-hmm. uh, too, right? Mm-hmm. Is yeah, it just, you, you don't want to go, I'm going to invest, but then you're investing in these mm-hmm. really low things with really low expected return. In that mm-hmm. case, you would have been better off just clearing your debt and getting that off the plate, I think. Exactly. But I, yeah, I feel a lot of people feel like, especially if like their only debt is student debt, they feel like they can only do one, not the other. I'm like, you know, you can continue to pay off your debt more than the minimum and invest your money Mm -hmm. at the same time. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. 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 You could always just set some like reasonable schedule of how much you're going to be paying it off and then having some money left over just to get into the market so you can dollar cost Mm -hmm. average in as well, Exactly. Um, which is probably the better idea is to do, I would say probably to do that. 
that way you do get the dollar cost average. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, that's great. All right. So let's shift gears a little bit. You're, uh, I got my, I got the investing talk out of my system. So <laughs> <laughs> we'll talk about investing. So I'm happy to do it. So uh, the other thing I really want to chat to you about is you're definitely a successful entrepreneur. Uh, so let's shift gears a bit and talk about your life as an entrepreneur for anybody that wants to eventually work for themselves like you do, or maybe even just have a side hustle just to generate some extra income, you know, to pay mm-hmm. for what, you know, whatever it is that, that they want. Uh, so as an entrepreneur, you know, one of the things I find it's really easy to take on too much and get burnt out mm-hmm. and I've done some reading of your blog and I noticed you've run into this issue too where you were working too much getting burnt out do, oh, yeah. do you have a daily routine that works well for you just to balance the business with the personal time so that it is actually sustainable oh, you know I still haven't perfected it my husband's definitely better he's been self-employed for I'd say 13 years now and he's I mean we're still both I'll be honest workaholics because we both love what we do so it's not like we're like just grinding it out and just like hating our lives we're like he works in music he's living his dream right now running his own business in the, the music industry and me I love talking about money so I'm happy to work long hours because I love doing what I'm doing but we do need that balance because otherwise we'll go crazy and so one thing that we we have now done is we take at least what well, I know this sounds bad, but I'm like, this is good for us. We take at least one day off on the weekend to do absolutely nothing, nothing work related. And this is big because we used to work every weekend. So we would work like seven days a week because there's always more work to do. It's always there. Now we take at least one, if not two days uh, per week, completely off. So we could just chill, make food, read, watch movies, go for a walk, whatever. And even for chores, we try not to do those on the weekend. If we can help it, we try to do those during the week. So we really can just relax. We're also very lucky in that lucky it's a choice but we do not have kids so we are able to kind of structure our weekends like that so we're allowed to do that but that's kind of what we've done now just to get a little bit more balance we're also doing a lot more uh fitness and so for us especially during the winter months i definitely get affected by like that seasonal dis- uh, depressive disorder i think it has to do with like not getting enough sunlight <laughs> but uh, and not leaving the house sometimes because it's so cold and so we definitely go to the gym multiple times per week and every time we do we're like yes this is so good for our mental health um and just gives you a sense of balance and and you're again you're working on that one specific task that has nothing to do with your work so it's like very very good to me i also make sure i'm always reading a book and not just finance books like I, I I read finance books once in a while like especially because I have a lot of guests who have books on my show so I try to read those but I also read a lot of fiction and autobiographies things that can just like make me remember the world is bigger than just your little bubble and of course my husband's uh, getting well he has been into meditation for quite some time so I'm trying to I'm just very stubborn and, and impatient so it's taken me a long time to really adopt that practice but so many people especially if you look at so many other entrepreneurs they swear by meditation. So that's something that I want to integrate into. I have the Headspace app on my phone. I just haven't made an account. <laughs> I, I think I've tried it like, f- I don't know, five times. Because I, yeah. I hear everyone Apparently saying how you're supposed to it. takes you a long time to really develop it as a practice. Okay. Like, so you're supposed to try it and just keep on trying it until it sticks. Okay. So, but it does, for me, I'm like, that just sounds so boring. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm just like I'm I could be try. doing something right now, but I'm doing. I this know, thing. I know, yeah. which is like, yes, this is why you need meditation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, so, I failed at least five times. I, I'm, I'm gonna. It's still on my phone though. I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll come back yeah. to it. Yeah, yeah. But I, I the struggle is real. I, <laughs> the struggle is real. I know. I know. Because <laughs> like every like, like business person that I 
like or like a lot of them that mm-hmm. I respect, they're all like, "Oh, yeah, yeah you got to do this meditation thing. Got to do this I meditation know. thing." And I'm like, "Okay, there's clearly something to this." Like, you I know, know. and I, it's but it's hard. <laughs> it is hard. It's really hard. <laughs> but uh it's like I don't think it's like the thing is it's like I'm complaining about it. it's so hard. I'm like I think it's like 10 minutes a day. You have 10 minutes a day yeah. to meditate. But it's totally yeah, for me it's like my routine is like I get up in the morning I look at my phone, which is the worst thing you should do. Don't do that. I'm gonna try. I'm trying not to. It's hard not to. And then I make coffee and breakfast, and then I start working. So I don't necessarily have a great template for like how to live a perfect balanced life. Even though like the tagline for my brand is money life balance, because those are aspirations. <laughs> those aren't things I've already achieved. I'm working on building my wealth. I'm working on having that great life. I'm working on balance. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I remember one thing that really stuck with me uh, when I was younger. I used to work. I work at Microsoft. And I remember with the one mm-hmm. time we had they had like a thing with the CEO uh, where he would like give advice and things like mm-hmm. that. And I remember he said he would take one day off a week, uh, mm-hmm. you know, just like no work, no nothing with the family, that kind of stuff. Yeah. And I was like a workaholic at the time. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, but I remember that really struck a chord with me because I remember like, okay, if you're the CEO of Microsoft, mm-hmm. I mean, and you are doing that. <laughs> Mm-hmm. then like what excuse do I have for not doing that yeah. like like come on man you know what I mean just be yeah uh, you know what I mean like, clearly he's onto something clearly he's achieved the high level of success maybe mm-hmm. you can this is clearly something you should uh, you know and it's also like it makes you sustainable too right because then you don't burn out burn out and yeah. all that kind of stuff and then you don't get a divorce because you never see your family you know what I mean like there's all these Honestly, benefits yeah. Right? yeah and I think also like what's been very helpful too is having a very supportive partner like I think it helps that Josh is self-employed but also he's very supportive of, of me, you know, doing this business, um, just as I've always been supportive of him doing his business. And it's very tough because he's like in his industry, he's like, most of the people I know are divorced or they're on their second or third marriages. And it's because you can easily get into a mode where you're just working all the time. And I'm like, I totally get that. I don't know how a lot of other people do it. But for us, it's it's been, you know, a lot of communication. We always communicate like, how are you doing? How are we feeling? Uh, maybe we should take some time off or whatever. Um, but then, you know, so so we do kind of keep each other accountable too. So that's helpful. That's great. That's great. So I also noticed too that you work a lot with uh, some pretty big brands in your business. So for somebody mm-hmm. that's, let's say, just looking to start or grow or even just grow their own existing business, how do you personally approach such companies and close these kinds of deals? That's a good question. I feel like at the start, I probably did some pitching of companies, but I, I feel like, so I started blogging eight years ago and started working with brands maybe six years ago in kind of small capacities, usually just like a sponsored blog post here and there. But I think it's because I spend mo- I spent most of my time not pitching and not trying to find the money. It was really just about creating content. Like I did the first season of my podcast, like I did 52 episodes in one year and didn't get one sponsor. I never looked for a sponsor, but no sponsors came to me anyway. But I, I was really, the key was just like, I want to c- create good content first and hopefully people will notice and they'll come to me. And and that's kind of what's worked for me. I've really focused on like crafting a really kind of, I think, identifiable and beautiful brand, I guess, on just it's about personal finance for everyone. And I think a lot of brands have taken notice. And so now they do come to me, which is quite nice, but also it was, it was a slow burn because it's really about fostering those relationships. So a lot of these brands I now work with that, you know, you are like, Oh, how'd you get that? I'm like, I've been fostering that relationship for years. And it's sometimes 
you will have meetings and nothing will come of it uh, until a few years later. And then finally, there's like a campaign and you actually get paid. So it's not as easy as it sounds. It does take a lot of like I worked for free for years um, before making a dime. And then it's only in the past three years that I've actually been able to make like a full time living. And it's only been in like the past two years that I've actually been like, oh, I'm actually making a better living than the job that I, I left. So happy with that but it is it is like I, I don't know if there's necessarily like a right or wrong way to do it or like a specific way like I don't know how a lot of other people do it but this is the way that's worked out for me so was it just that your brand became big enough and you became known enough and like your sites you're looking good and all that and people kind said all the of, and then yeah started approaching um, you is that kind of yeah I mean I'd say the only thing that I know that for I have like specifically reached out for brand sponsorship was the event series that I do because you can only put on an event if you have sponsorship money because events are very expensive to put on. Especially in Toronto. It's so funny. <laughs> Especially in Toronto. Are, it's yeah. funny. Like so many people are like, oh, you know, like I always make ticket pl- uh, prices pretty low, but there's always, of course, a sponsor. And some people are like, oh, why do you have to have a sponsor? I'm like, do you want your ticket to be $500? <laughs> like it costs money to put on an event. And so for that, I always, if I want to put on an event myself, then I reach out to a brand and pitch them the idea. But t- typically I will always have a contact. If not, then maybe I know someone in the industry or something that can put me in touch with that person. But it is kind of hard when you're just starting off. You're like, how do I meet brands? I'm like, it, it is hard. You're going to have to kind of, you know, do some cold pitching or create brand or a product or an event series or something that's so cool and unique and then pitch them hey do you want to partner with me no one else is doing this or I think this would be a good fit and have something have a reason why they should partner with you and I think that's the other important thing I want to always make sure that I was spending more time creating new unique cool things than spending money just trying to chase money from brands Mm -hmm. because ultimately at the end of the day my goal wasn't to become like an influencer. It was to make enough money to live so I can create products, do speaking, do events, educate people. That's the, that's the goal. I don't like in a perfect world, I'd be able to make money directly from like the consumer or from speaking engagements uh, alone and not have to work with brands at all. Yeah. I find things have really shifted just in general and not just our industry, but others too, where um, on the consumer level, people like to get things for free. Um, Mm -hmm. like companies are willing to pay for things but more and more like you know like you look at free apps right like a lot of them it's oh we'll get the app for free and then they hope that you get hooked on it or whatever and then you start actually buying the premium service or buy the extra whatever features or whatever the case Mm -hmm. may be so yeah i find it's like uh yeah it's quite the struggle did you did you um start off small when you started working with these different brands like where you would do like just like a little project with them for not a lot of money and then as you did stuff and it fostered then it became like okay now let's do events uh let, do you want to yeah, was it like that definitely i was definitely doing it wrong for a while like doing sponsored blog posts and podcast episodes for like no money because i just didn't know any better and that's again learning experience and also i think something that um typically women struggle with is negotiation because i didn't know that i could negotiate i was kind of taught over the years, just be grateful for getting the work or getting the paycheck, which is a terrible thing to think about. Um, Cause that's just not what a man typically thinks uh, when they're in negotiations. I didn't know, like I'd never negotiated any of my job salaries besides one of them because on the phone, they told me one number and then they gave me another one. They gave me the contract. So I did negotiate that. But otherwise I, I was just like, Oh, thanks so much for the job. I'm so lucky. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so as a self-employed person, you can't do that because then you will not make enough money. So the only way to 
grow your business and make money is to demand more money. And uh, the way to do that is to uh, create a lot of different offerings. So for me, I did start out just like doing sponsored blog posts, but then I'm like, you know what? Uh, That's kind of limiting because you get the money and then you're done. You can't do another blog post right away with them. So what you can do is be like, well, I also have a podcast. I have a YouTube channel. Uh, do you need some freelancer writing for your website? Um, do you need a public speaker for an event that you're hosting or something like that? Um, do you want to sponsor my events? So I have a whole kind of, uh, or, you know, there are lots of other things I, uh, I've done. Like uh, I've been hired to do a, a webinar, like co-host a webinar or something for their platform or, you know, little th- or, or hosted a Twitter chat or something like that. So there's so many different things that you can do to basically, if a brand approaches you and you want to get as much money out of them as possible, offer them a lot of different things. <laughs> Be like, do you want to do this? Do you want to do all of this? Like for, you know, video, instead of saying, oh, do you want to do one video? Do you want to do, you want to do an, a video series with me? <laughs> like just come up with as many ideas as you can. And that's what I found was the the big difference between my business in 2017 compared to 2018 as I started kind of uh, offering them a package instead of just a one deal offering. That's, that's really, really smart. I mean, anybody that's sort of cut their teeth on the entrepreneurial or side hustle thing or, or read books about it, they know that it's much easier to have a you know recurring customer as opposed to just always trying to get a new mm-hmm. customer, new customer, because it's so much more difficult to get a new one than to yep. just sell something else to your existing. And so mm-hmm. I really, it's really smart how you've applied that where you're like, okay, mm-hmm. well, I'm going to start working with this brand. Well, now I have a contact there. Now I have a relationship mm-hmm. with them. We started off small. We did something successful. Let's scale it up a bit now. And all of a sudden it's like one relationship. And I mean, it's it's bearing fruit, right? As opposed to you mm-hmm. like cold calling another company, you know, and then you yeah. don't know when you're on there hoping to get something with them. Instead, it's like, well, hey, let's use what we mm-hmm. do have uh, and maybe we can just scale things with an existing sponsor that where we, I know we already work well mm-hmm. together and I know we're already a good fit. Very smart. Yeah, and most of, yeah, most of my work comes from uh, recurring clients. It's rare, honestly, when I get a, a new brand that wants to work with me is usually just the people that I've been working with for years or brands I've been working with for years are kind of my, my main kind of point of uh, clients, which is also very important. So when you do get that deal, you need to make sure that you're giving a 110% that you're putting in as much effort as you can to create whatever, you know, the best blog post or best video, or just like putting your, you know, all in and also like being a nice person. I know lots of people that have, uh, you know, they had a brand, a uh, personal brand or whatever, and they burned some bridges because of their attitude. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's like, also be nice. Like, don't think you have any, like, don't have an ego and, you know, just be a nice human being is actually sometimes a good reminder for some people that I think get a little too big for their britches mm-hmm. kind of thing. So be humble. <laughs> yeah, that's great advice. And then one other thing relating to that is, I mean, when it, there is no manual out there saying, if you're doing this, charge X. If you're doing this, charge Y, yeah. right? It's, and I find pricing is a very common thing that people have trouble with, just mm-hmm. entrepreneurs, anybody just trying to run a side hustle, anything like that. How did you determine what to charge them and how, how do you continue mm-hmm. to manage that so that you're not undercharging and that you are getting you know, paid what's fair? Mm-hmm. I think the first thing is figure out what what's like the the least amount that you can earn from that to still you know make some money or or whatever because there's always kind of there's some costs on your end so it's like how much do i absolutely need to make for this to be worth my time the resources it takes my energy all this kind of stuff 
And then also talk to a lot of other people if you can in that space, even if they're in maybe a different industry, but they do something similar to you, having those conversations with like, hey, can you either tell me what you charge if you're uncomfortable with that? Because some people are you know, uncomfortable with that. Because you do need to build trust in order to trust the other person with that information. You don't want to tell someone and then they end up telling someone else, right? Um, you can also say, can you give me a good range? Or this is what I hope to do. What do you think is a reasonable range for something like this based on where you're at with your business? Or what would someone in your position charge or something like that? Just so you get an idea of what other people are charging. For me, that's been a really helpful factor. Because uh, a lot of the times, I always feel like I charge a number and I get it. I'm like, Great. But typically, if you get a yes right away, then it means that you probably could have gotten more money out of them. And also, it's, it's just helpful to know, like, am I totally off? Am I totally undercharging me? It's hard to know because a lot of people uh, don't really want to share their rates. So it's it's also about you know, fostering those relationships, uh, other peers that are kind of doing similar things to you. So you can find out what am I charging? What are you charging? Am I not charging enough? And more times than not, you're probably not charging enough. Mm-hmm. So, Yeah. Yeah, no, that's and a then great. Sometimes it's about just giving out and putting out a number of like, this is, I would be so happy with this number. Even if you think it's so way above something that you're like, oh, I don't know. Put out that number. Almost every time I've done that, I've gotten it. And it's so heartbreaking because you're like, are you kidding me? You mean I've been <laughs> undercharging myself for the past year? Great. Yeah. <laughs> and from from what I've heard, just talking to other entrepreneurs, like this, this is a common thing. The whole undercharging problem mm-hmm. is very, very uh, common. Uh, 100 percent. Mm-hmm. So it's something to be really mm-hmm. conscious of because yeah, you kind of kick yourself afterwards, and it's like yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, you, and it's also uh, you know it's important to say no because I get a lot of pitches where they will have certain you know they're not focused on ha- you and your livelihood; they're focused on themselves. So I get a lot of pitches for speaking because they say that I do a lot of speaking, and uh, and then I've gotten one recently, and I'm like, how do I email this person and not be mean? <laughs> but basically, they were asking, can you? participate in this kind of uh, speaking webinar series and there's a ton of exposure I'm like you said that you said the wrong word you said exposure that means you're paying me an exposure and you know that's a lot of work to develop you know all that content and also they're like well um it, it, yeah we don't do a flat fee for our speakers but you can make some money if you do an affiliate thing and I'm like I I've never done that so it's just not something that I have time to do and so I had to say no so that's like for me personally like I can't say no to a structure like that because I need to get paid um and then I've also gotten like some inquiries um, in the you know in the fall or whatever, uh, quite a few from like, oh, we'd love you to give a 45-minute presentation. I'm like, great, here's my speaking fee. They're like, oh, we don't have a budget, but you're going to meet so many interesting people and they may turn into clients, like financial counseling clients for you too. And I'm like, I, sorry. Or uh, I mean, the, one of the worst ones was it was for this like private club. They're like, you're going to meet so many, you know, wealthy people at this event. I'm like, and you can't pay me. <laughs> like, come on. So obviously I said no. I don't have time to work for free. So obviously I worked for free for years. So that's why I know kind of when you can start actually charging money and, and start start saying no to things that you know won't help. I know a lot of people have different perspectives on it. They're like, well, you may have missed an opportunity to meet someone who may lead to something. I'm like maybe, but also I think you also need to preserve your brand of I don't work for free because then you don't want to look like you're doing all this free stuff. And then a brand comes to you and they're like, oh, we want you to speak at this event. You're like, great. Here's my speaking fee. They're like, but we saw you speak for free at all these other events, you know? Right. So you got to kind of protect yourself a bit. Mm-hmm, for sure. How have you gotten away from like, one thing I've noticed is that just in, in business in general, I mean, it used to be that before the internet, you would have, oh, you advertise in a newspaper, let's say, and, you know, people or a magazine and people got used to just paying a flat fee 
for something, right? And that was how advertising worked. Mm -hmm. Nowadays, I've noticed a lot more companies really pushing for the the affiliate model, right? Where you mm -hmm. get paid or, or pay for a performance model, right? Where you only get paid if you actually, um, you know, sell the product or, or you, know, th you know, things of that nature. You know, one of the videos that I saw that you made, you said you don't really do a lot of affiliate deals. So mm -hmm. how have you gotten around that? Because um, I remember I used to, I was in a, a sort of mega, magazine industry for a while back in the day too. And I remember that was one of the way things were. like people just became a lot more resistant to buying like a one-page ad than they used to be because mm -hmm. they could now get a lot better stats if they just advertise online, you know, things like that. Um, yeah, how do, you, how do you, it seems like you've gotten around that in a way. How do you do that? Uh, it's more just being like, I don't have to work with you then. <laughs> having, like, having that like financial cushion and also knowing that there's so many other people that will work with me or there's other ways that I can make money on my own. If no brand wants to work with me tomorrow and never again, I can still make money because A, I have this audience that trusts me and uh, I've been you know consistent with them for years and I'm a financial counselor. I, can, I have a running wait list of people that want to work with me and I can also, I have products so I can just double down on building products. So for me, I think having a lot of different streams of income has been very, very helpful in giving me that kind of permission to say, yeah, no, I'm not going to do that. If you want to work with me, that you have it has to be on my terms and this is how much it costs. Mm -hmm. And typically, there's only been a few people who are like, okay, sorry, uh, we can't work with you. We're like, okay, bye. And sometimes they come back around because also I am lucky in that what I do is very niche and that not a lot of people are doing exactly what I'm I can provide. And so they usually find that they have to come back to me because there's no one else, especially in Toronto too. I'm like one of the few people in Toronto kind of doing what I'm doing. Like there's a lot of great money experts in the city, but a lot of them are like maybe a bit older or more seasoned. And so they're probably a lot more expensive than me. <laughs> so, you know, do you want to spend 20 grand hiring that person or less than 20 grand to work with me? Mm -hmm. um, so that's something that I have uh, that I think is a, a little bit helpful. <laughs> yeah. Well, and when you run your millennial meetups, for example, right? It's like, are they going to hire someone that's, you know, 40 talking about millennials and, yeah. you know, or are they going to hire someone who is a millennial and who specializes in this and, you know what I mean? And, and has already produced all this great content. Well, that's the thing with the events. It's great to have, I'm like, this is something that now I've trademarked the name millennial money meetup in Canada. So no one else can use that term. Cause I did see a few copycats actually. Um, and so trademark that took a while, but I'm the only one that runs that type of event. Now I predominantly do them in Toronto. I've done one in Vancouver. I would love to do them in other cities, but logistically it is difficult doing an event in a city that you don't live in. But when I talk to a brand, they want to work with me. I'm like, why don't we do an event? Guess what? There's no one else who does events like this. So you can do an event with me or not an event at all. Right. right. <laughs> so and also like I it's not that I just run events. I get people there because I have a huge uh, audience, especially in, in, in Toronto, they come, they've come consistently to my events. I've done seven so far. They've always sold out. So that's a sign that's like, not only are you going to do an event with me, it's going to sell out because it always does. Cause I have that built-in audience base that will come. So that's again, just building things that you can own that no one else can kind of replicate or, or take away from you. I think is key. That's great. That's great. And then are there any sort of uh, specific channels or projects that you have found to be the best return on your time invested? I'm sure you get, there's like, well, I, I know how this is too. I mean, there's hmm. hundreds of things you could be potentially doing, right. To try to grow your business. You know, hmm. are there any, and then there's a lot that you've tried. 
Mm. Are there certain ones where you thought, you know what, this was a really good, I know before offline on your podcast, you were talking about uh, social media stuff and things like that. Yeah. You know, are there certain channels or projects that you're like, you know what, this is a really good time investment? Uh, you know, mm. Yeah. I would say the number one thing that I learned is, especially if you do want to build your own, you know, products or things that you want to sell directly to your audience is building your email list. And this is something that I learned years ago. Even at this time too, I, I think it was like maybe in 2015 or 2016, people were talking about email list building and people were like, people still read emails or, you know, who does that? Everyone. That is how you make money off your audience. Um, and so I, that's how I got my financial counseling clients. That's how I've been selling my course. It's not through social media because no one really, how many times have you been on like Twitter or Instagram and then clicked a buy button? You're like, and then buy something. No, no, no. <laughs> you're pretty much just looking and you're like, I'll think about it. I'll come back later. And then you never do with an email. That's a direct access from me to my reader and having a car. And I even say like, you can reply back and I'll, I'll have a conversation with you over email. Like it is my email. That's like this, uh, sending this e-blast to you. And so that is typically how I, I, I make my money. And uh, that's how a lot of people stay in touch with me. Even if they don't read my blog or watch my videos or listen to my podcast consistently, they will see my name once a week because they send them an email newsletter, what my updates are. And so it's almost like that because I'm like that. I, I subscribe to a bunch of emails that I don't necessarily read every week, but you know, like even lots of brands that I'm on their email list. It's like their brand is always front of mind because they get their email email like once a month or whatever. So email list building is still so key to having uh to you know fostering your audience and and eventually selling your own products. Mm -hmm. So I, I double down on that. That's awesome. All right, well that, that's great, great um, Jess. So thank you. Uh, thanks for coming on the show and tell us a bit more. Where can listeners learn from, uh, more from you? Perfect. Oh, it's so nice to talk to you. I, I mean, I can't believe we talked for this long, but I feel like we could probably talk for another hour. <laughs> um, I agree. You can find me. Yeah, right. Uh, we'll do another episode together. Um, so people can find me at jessicamorehouse.com. It's where you can find everything that I'm up to. You can get to my email list, uh, jessicamorehouse.com slash subscribe. Um, and my podcast is called The Mo Money Podcast. You can find it. It'll always kind of be trying to beat Cornell's podcast in the, the charts, but uh, we always are kind of battling out for the position. <laughs> we're, we're all at the mercy of the iTunes algorithm. I, we're just like, well, what is what are the algorithm gods say today? Who's... It doesn't make any sense. Sometimes I'm like above like a huge podcast. I'm like, what? Does that make sense? But okay, I'll take it. It's a little ego boost for the day. <laughs> But yeah, also you can find me on, on social media. I'm, I'm on Twitter at, at J-E-S-S-I underscore Morehouse or on Instagram, Jessica I Morehouse. Awesome. Okay, well, thanks so much for coming on, Jess. It's it's almost been an hour and a half now. And yeah, I feel like we could just yeah. keep talking forever. So we'll, we'll have to do this again. Uh, yeah, it's been, a, it's been a total blast. Hopefully, you know, the audience liked having a bit of a mix of side hustle and investment yes. talk. I, I hope that was, uh, you know, relevant for everyone. And uh, yeah, th thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. All right, take care. Bye. All right, thanks for tuning into the show. Make sure you're on the podcast mailing list so that I can send you free tickets to the Canadian Financial Summit coming this fall. It's a fully online event. You can watch all the presentations and interviews for free from many of the top personal finance and investing experts here in Canada. You'll learn an absolute ton about the best practices when it comes to optimizing your money and your investments, and it's all free. So to get your free tickets, just make sure you sign up anywhere over at Build Wealth Canada. .ca, and I'll be sure to email you the free tickets when they are released. And when you do that as a bonus, I'll also send you my PDF guide on the top tools that I use for my finances and investments here in Canada. So once again, just go to buildwealthcanada.ca and sign up anywhere there so that you get the free tickets when they are issued. 
Also, don't forget about some of the other free resources that we have available on this site for listeners of the show. You can get your financial planning questions answered for free for 30 minutes by going to buildwealthcanada.ca slash John. You can get your mortgage questions answered for free by going to buildwealthcanada.ca dot ca slash sean so just s-e-a-n and if you're looking to get started in investing or looking to optimize your investments and are tired of paying high fees to your robo advisor or your mutual fund provider then definitely check out my step-by-step investing course where i show you everything you need to know to be a do-it-yourself investor so that you can pay the absolute lowest fees on your investments and this can easily save you tens of thousands of dollars in unnecessary fees over your investment lifetime sometimes even hundreds of thousands of dollars depending how expensive your mutual funds currently are. So to learn more and try the course risk-free, go to buildwealthcanada.ca slash invest. That's buildwealthcanada.ca slash invest. And last but not least, don't forget to get your free guide on the top ETFs in Canada where I go into what I invest in and why. And to get that, just sign up using my link for a free savings account with the bank that I use, which is EQ Bank, where they have one of the highest interest rates that I've been able to find in Canada. And at the time of this recording, they are as much as 40 times higher compared to some of the other major banks out there. Plus, you get unlimited Interact e-transfers and unlimited transactions all for free. So to get the free high interest savings account and my ETF guide, you have to sign up through the special link over at buildwealthcanada.ca slash EQ. That's buildwealthcanada.ca slash the letter E and the letter Q. Then send me any confirmation email that you get from them after opening an account to bonus at buildwealthcanada.ca and I'll email you the entire ETF guide for free. All right, I hope you found all that helpful. Enjoy the bonuses, stay healthy out there, and I wish you and your family all the best. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Build Wealth Canada podcast at www.buildwealthcanada.ca. 